Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi everyone and welcome to the fourth round of Islamic Book Reviews with myself, uh, Usama Al-Azami and Omar Anshasi. We've done this for um, sort of four previous sessions now, so we're not going to actually introduce ourselves. Um, inshallah, that's uh, something which you can gather from the on-screen <laughs> sort of paraphernalia. And uh, inshallah, we're going to jump straight into this week's session by discussing, uh, inshallah, Omar will introduce the book for the session, Kitab al-Maqalat, attributed to Abu Ali al-Jubba'i, died in the year 303 of the Hijri calendar, something like 913 or 15, if I recall correctly, of the Gregorian. <laughs> and you can correct me on that, Omar. And um, the format's the usual. I'm uh, going to speak for 10 to 15 minutes about the book. Then I'll engage in a conversation with him. And then we'll go into Q&A. People are welcome to ask uh, questions and, uh, and we'll sort of, uh, any questions that come up in the comment section uh, you can do that on facebook you can do that on youtube and potentially on periscope as well we will inshallah show on the screen and try to respond to in the last probably 15 minutes or, or so of the show um and uh, uh, you know if you're interested in keeping in touch with us meaning watching us on a regular basis please do uh, remember to like follow or subscribe depending on the platform we're on facebook twitter and youtube uh, so inshallah without further ado I'll hand over to you, Omar, to introduce the book. Thank you very much. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, you may be right. I, I might have a cough of some kind. But anyway, today we will be discussing a very interesting and very early work, the Kitab al-Maqalat, attributed to Abu Ali al-Zubai. And again, I would like to thank uh, my friend Zakaria al-Hubba for uh, sending me a copy of this work. I hadn't been able to uh, source a copy myself because of uh, travel restrictions owing to COVID. Um, this work is fascinating because it's so early. Uh, the great majority of the theological uh, literature of that period, the third century, uh, and previously, of course, is lost to us and is only extant in fragments. And in the last few years, we've been extremely lucky, uh, not only with early texts, and this links back to points we made uh, last week when discussing Ahmed Shamsi's book. There are always uh, new uh, editions of early texts, new manuscripts being discovered, new editions coming out, which is fantastic for those of us with a kind of origins uh, fetish, <laughs> like myself. Um, and uh, the Mu'tazilan in particular have uh, benefited from this spate of new editions. Uh, some early works like the Kitab al-Tahrish of Dirar ibn Amr, whose attribution is widely accepted. Of course, some would uh, question his attribution to the Mu'tazila, but anyway. Um, recently, the Tahdeeb uh, al-Tafsir of al-Hakim al-Jishumi, um, much disagreement about how to pronounce his name. There's a large 10-volume tafsir and incredibly useful because it preserves many opinions from early Mu'tazila, including, of course, Abu Al al-Jabai, the subject of today's discussion, uh, who is known to have written a large tafsir. Sorry, could you give us rough death dates for Jishami or Jishami? He's in the sixth century, after, early sixth century after the Hijra. Okay. Uh, but his tafsir is encyclopedic, and right. he gives us uh, on on many areas. He'll present the views of Abu Ali and his son Abu Hashim, uh, Qadi Abdul Jabbar, and, and many other important right. Mu'tazili figures. Right. 
so he is kind of a uh, very useful, handy reference if you know want to know what Mu'tazila, uh, early Mu'tazila thought about particular right. uh, verses of the Quran and their interpretation. But anyway, uh, these are just some examples. There are others, uh, indeed, and uh, sometimes these. Uh, publications are based on the discovery of new manuscripts. Um, sometimes uh, it is careful editors who have recovered fragments um, of these works from other works. So Razi and his tafsir and uh, Sheikh Al-Ta'if Al-Tusi and others also cite Mu'tazili opinions quite extensively. So we now have the five-volume collection, Mosu'at Tafsir Al-Mu'tazila. Uh, which uh, collects, again, these various opinions, not based on the discovery of manuscripts, but right. on fragments quoted by other authors. Uh, um, who is now, the editor of that? Uh, me, and, uh, and, uh, Ahmed if I'm not mistaken. So it's just called from, from printed, right. uh, printed works. Now, yeah. um, the maqalat, and I'll hold up my print-off, uh, to the, the camera. Yeah. Uh, so edited, I should say, by two... Uh, somewhat embarrassingly for us, Osama, three, uh, sorry, young Turkish editors, all, all younger than, than the two of us. Oskan Simsek, Abdul Karim Iskandar Sarija, and Yusuf Ari Khaner. So two uh, young uh, Turkish scholars who are working from the copy of the manuscript. Uh, the manuscript in which this work is found Attribute, uh, attributed to uh, Jubai is a manuscript in which we also find the Kitab at Harish as well as other works. Right. This was discovered uh, by Hassan Ansari in the Yemeni city of Shahara. Right. Uh, as Ahmed al-Shamsi says in, in the book we discussed last week, in some respects, uh, Yemen was, its manuscripts holdings were less impoverished by Ottoman rule than places like Egypt. Um, and the Zaydis, uh, the important uh, Muslim group or sect, also known to have been quite diligent in the preservation of Mu'tazili works because they subscribe to Mu'tazili theology on the whole and were dependent on them for the preservation of many important works, including the extant parts of the Qadi Abdul Jabbar's uh, Mughni. Uh, so this is one example of such work. And uh, I should say something about its attribution and that its contents. Uh, having reviewed the book before this session, the authors do not really commit them themselves to the, the attribution to Al-Dubay. And uh, there are many reasons for this. One of the standout reasons is because in most of the biographical literature on Al-Jubba'i, I'm speaking about Abu Ali when I say Al-Jubba'i, he had the famous son Abu Hashim who became more important than him as a theologian to subsequent Mu'tazila. But Abu Ali, uh, we find his biography in many places, including Ibn Nadim's Fihrist, where it seems to be slightly cut off. Uh, but we know of about 70 works from various biographical sources um, attributed to him. And in almost none of those sources is a Kitab al-Maqalat mentioned. Hmm. Now, uh, one of the uh, contributions of the three editors is their discovery, building on Hassan Ansari's point, he finds a Kitab al-Maqalat attributed to al-Jubba'i in a work by... Uh, 
somewhat obscure Yemeni scholar called Al-Jundari, and they established that Al-Jundari is actually basing this attribution on the, the famous uh, Yemeni uh, Zaydi Ibn al-Murtada, who wrote uh, many important Mu'tazili works. And I, I believe I'm correct in saying that he's also the, the author of the most important Zaydi fiqh work that's still taught and commented on today in the Yemen. Um, but that's... It's not al-Bahr al-Zakhar. No, it's... Uh, well, the, the Sharuha called things like Taj al Mudahab al Gosh, it, it will come to me. It will reappear. It's, it, it appears in various editions. There are a couple of important commentaries. And it's it's refuted. Well, lots of it is, is discussed critically and commented on by Al Shawkani in his Al Sayl al Jarrar. Right, right. Uh, so I, it's a rhyming title, so I'll remember Ibn al-Murtada's work. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Anyway, um, but anyway, so only really does, does uh, Ibn al-Murtada attribute this work to him. And even when he attributes it, attributes it to him, his characterization of the work does not really correspond to what we find in the published work uh, based on the manuscript. So he says, for, for instance, in one, one of his uh, works, Al-Munya wal-Amal, that it's uh, it's a very descriptive work and he doesn't refute any of the sects he discusses but actually it's a very polemical work and he refutes all of the sects he discusses and he, he devotes really more time to refuting them than he does to accounting for their beliefs but all, ibn al-murtad in a different work of his gives another another explanation but so it's not absolutely clear this work does indeed belong to al-jubai but the editors uh, argue very persuasively that it is certainly a Mu'tazili work, and I think that's self-evident. Right. 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 And I mean, he describes the, the five principles of the Mu'tazila and so on. Uh, and also, uh, it, it clearly belongs to the third century, and this uh, mm. is based mostly on, uh, for instance, the authorities, the author cites. So he cites, I think, nine different contemporaries and gives in a sned through them. And mm. all of these, well, most of them, uh, lived in the third century, particularly the second half of the third century in Jabba, of course, dies in 303. So even if it's not his, that doesn't matter too much because it certainly belongs to Omar Tezali uh, of the third century. And that's extremely um, valuable as an early text, basically. Yes, and uh, very valuable. I, many of the sects and groups and views he discusses are uh, really of antiquarian interest, but the major part of his critique is devoted to, I mean, I'll, and I'll be assuming for the rest of this this uh, episode that it, the author is indeed Abu Ali al-Jubay, just to make our lives a bit easier. Okay. Uh, so Jubay's major critique, he discusses many sects, but the major uh, dimension of his critique is directed against uh, those he refers to in derogatory terms as the Hashwiya, sometimes uh, on rare occasions as uh, the Awam or commoners. Uh, by by which he means, of course, the Ahl al-Hadith or the proto-Sunnis. And he, he names actually some of their opponents. He makes it very clear that Imam Ahmed is one of their leaders. And uh, the editors also point out, based on, on quite clear descriptions, that uh, the text was clearly written after the end of the Mahnab. So uh, the uh, proto-Sunnis are triumphant in the period in which uh, the author is writing. 
he does discuss be, other works, uh, other sects. Forgive me, uh, it would be more or less inevitable that it is written after the Muhammad because, you know, Ahmed is much earlier than 3.41 dies. Of course, but the Mehna yeah. lasts some years. It begins right. in, this is embarrassing, 2.19. So in the last, in the last six months of Al-Ma'mun's reign. Right. So we, we think of uh, Al-Ma'mun primarily in terms of the Mehna, but he had a long reign, and this is something that happened only in the last, last year. Right. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating work because uh, we take for granted a particular kind of Sunnism that emerges later and crystallizes later. Sectarian identities are still somewhat fluid, of course, in this, this period. They only crystallize later. Right. Um, but most of his critique is directed against the proto-Sunnis. There are also substantial directions, uh, sorry, uh, sections directed against the uh, Rawafid, which is a general term for Shia groups who, who reject uh, the caliphates of Abu Bakr Omar, and Omar, uh, mm -hmm. only one group of which is the Imamis, who kind right. of you could think of as sort of proto-12ers, but of course you haven't had all 12 Imams by this point. Well, there hasn't been occultation or the final uh, occultation by this point. Right. Uh, so, and, and there are also less lengthy critiques of the Khawarij and the Uthmaniyya and, and other groups. I mean, sometimes the Uthmaniyya are conflated and other times distinguished from the, uh, from the proto-Sunnis. He does use a variety of sectarian labels, but uh, these, we, we, generally speaking, we can recognize these. We can know based on the views he describes uh, which groups he's talking about. And the editors have done, I think, a sterling job of tracing the various views and hadith uh, he cites and critiques to primary sources that are that are extant. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the editors have done a really helpful job, and they say, "Ma'adiratan ila rabbihim." That yes, you know, Hassan Ansari will surely do an even better job, and I think Madalong is also involved in that edition, which right, will right. come out with Brill. But you know, we wanted to start it off, and mm -hmm. it's it's a good thing if what comes after us improves on on our edition. We wanted to get the ball rolling because right. it wasn't clear when exactly this edition uh, right. of Ansari would would come out. So if it's okay, I'm, I'm going to jump in here and. We've discussed a lot about attribution. We've discussed about the historical context of the work. Um, it would be, I think, uh, a great opportunity to kind of give a, a schematic overview of what sort of... Kitab al-Makhalat is such a generic name, of course, and you've kind of signaled yes. it. So what would be a kind of generic overview of the contents of the work? What's the purpose? Why was it written? Great. Well, the Makhalat is really a genre, and it is a genre that is established before... Uh, Abu Ali al-Jubayi, and of course the most famous work of Maqalat is the Maqalat al-Islami uh, of al-Ash'ari. Uh, there is also the recently edited Maqalat uh, of Abu al-Qasim al-Balkhi al-Ka'abi. Uh, and this is another early Mu'tazili work that has come out recently. Um, but what this genre aims to do is uh, to explain the different beliefs uh, and, and dogmas and doctrines entertained and held by different Muslim sects. Now, some of these works are more polemically intentioned than others. This particular maqala, so Ash'ari is uh, often, not always, but often quite dispassionate when he describes the, the beliefs mm. of different groups. Right. 
um, and uh, to some extent also Shahrastani in his Milal wa Nahal, but other. So it, it's it's you could think of it as um, uh, part of this genre on heresiography and sectarian uh, writing about different sectarian beliefs, uh, but. Abu Ali uh, does not pull his punches, as it were. It's very clear what his views are throughout. Right. Um, and as I said, uh, mostly critique of al-Hadith. Uh, in terms of structure, it's um, well, it's very rich and also very eclectic. Right. So there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of structure to it. Right. Uh, it seems that he just picks uh, issues that he finds interesting or relevant right. and then discusses them. And I would say most of the book, it's, it's not very long. I think uh, the text itself around, I believe, 130 pages in, in the printed edition is also a Turkish translation, incidentally. Right. Um, and about 20 pages or so of, of the editor's introduction. Uh, so he discusses these different beliefs in no particular sequence. Now, the, the, the work itself does actually have an introduction by the author, hmm. but uh, for whatever reason, uh, not very clear, uh, hmm. the introduction begins in media res. So the first part of the introduction seems to be cut off, and he begins by describing the contents of the work. Right. Uh, so, and the strange thing is, even though one would assume that from this stage onward, the work is complete, hmm. Although it also tends to end, it seems to end on a rather odd note. You know, he, the last part of the book describes the the passing of the Prophet والسلام, and uh, the lead, uh, the caliphate of Abu Bakr, and so on. And then suddenly, uh, the copyist—we don't have a colophon—but he says, uh, you know, Tamil, you know, this work we've completed copying this work, and so on, based on the handwriting. It's clear that all of the works in this Mejmoa collection uh, in the manuscript are copied by the same uh, copyist in the year 540 after the Hijra. Okay. Uh, but to give you a sample of the kinds of works he discusses, most of it, as I said, is a critique of the, the Hal al-Hadith or proto-Sunnis. And for instance, he discusses uh, a range of issues such as the return and the descent of the Prophet Isa, alayhi mm. uh, the Dajjal, he discusses uh, al-Silsila, the kind of chain that supposedly some uh, proto said linked or used to link uh, the uh, Sahra, this, this rock in Jerusalem with the heavens. Right. Uh, he discusses uh, Qadr at length, predestination. He discusses uh, a range of prophets mentioned in the Quran, including Solomon and David and Moses. Right. He discusses, I mean, it's, it's a very, as you can, you can see, it's very, eclectic very, very diverse right. uh, and disparate topics. He just kind of moves from one to the other in no particular sequence. So, and uh, there are also substantial discussions of the MM8. Uh, some very interesting uh, and lively refutations of, uh, for instance, Imami views on, on leadership of the Muslim community and on the Khawarij, critiques mm. of the proto-Sunnis and their views on the Imamite as well. Um, and one does really get the sense, as, as described in the biographical literature, that Al-Jubayi was uh, you know, an ingenious debater. And he also engages now and then in takfir of his opponents when he feels their works contradict the explicit teaching of the Qur'an. 
So, uh, in a sense, one of the questions that arise. Sorry, I think I'm going to see if I can mute myself and then come back. Um, in a sense, one of the uh, questions that may arise to some of our viewers, uh, you know, some a lot of um, my viewers are likely to be, uh, you know, from a Sunni uh, background. I myself, of course, of that heritage and Sunnism. Uh, you know, uh, Al-Ash'ari comes not too long after Jubai and basically... Uh, he's, so a he's a student. He's a student, direct student. Famous and, and famous dissenter, so to speak. But um, in a sense, uh, the the question that arises is, you know, what sort of... Um, what's of value f from a Sunni perspective? And we're, we're talking at a time when you've referred to the proto-Sunnis, so to speak. It's, Sunnism hasn't really sort of established itself uh, or not, in not in the form that would be recognized by right. theologians like al Jawadi or something. Right, right. And I mean, in a sense, uh, even uh, you have to wait until the Mamluk era and the Subki, <laughs> you know, synthesis of the Maturidis and the Ashaira and so on. To Yeah, so it's, it's a long process that takes many centuries to unfold. Right. And, you know, in a sense, we're looking at a time where the way in which Islam is perceived, um, and this kind of takes us back to last week's session with uh, on Shamsi's book, uh, in a sense, um, the nature of the debates transform over time. So what constitutes Islam, what is a meaningful sort of attachment to Islam varies over time. And, I, you know, I don't know if you could perhaps reflect on, um, you know, what it meant to be Muslim. <laughs> this is a question like which is of interest to myself, um, to someone like Jubba'i, who, you know, later Ash'aris and later Sunnis would, you know, look askance at, but he was, you know, the Mu'tazila were to all intents and purposes part of the Muslim community in those societies, even though they might have had a greater predilection for takfir and things like that. But a lot of that was intellectual. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily sort of um, uh, didn't necessarily. Yes, or it may not have had the real real world consequences. Sorry? Yes, I mean, you're right that takfir was really an intellectual exercise that probably didn't have many real-world consequences. Yeah. So I, I just wonder, like, how, how is the world in which Jubei wrote, you know, radically different to the world of the sort of mature Ash'ara, and how is that perhaps different to our own times in which the Sunnis have a, a very distinctive sort of perspective as well? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's the nice thing about early works, and one reason why we should all value early works, as as opposed to most <laughs> classical ones, you might say, <laughs> is they they afford us, of course, one particular glimpse coming from one perspective um, of the formation of these schools when uh, the book was written, uh, Asharism as a theological school was not yet a gleam in the eye of al-Ash'ari, so okay. to speak. Uh, and, you know, even in, in the lifetime of al-Ash'ari, it's premature to speak of an yes. Ash'ari theological school. Yes. Um, and more interestingly, uh, <laughs> for me, it's, it's quite fascinating to see how the views of the proto-Sunnis clearly diverge from what later becomes, several centuries later, the theological orthodoxy of Ash'arism and later Maturidism. Right. Uh, so after very briefly refuting the Murji'a, uh, who, whom he defines as those who believe faith is uh, just statements yeah. and confirmation without actions, uh, the uh, book almost 
begins with a discussion of the uh, supposed anthropomorphism of the proto-Sinese. Right. And uh, Jobetti's critique is more or less the, uh, made in the same terms that the Ash'aris would later make of Hanbalites. Right. Um, so when he describes the views of the proto-Sinese, uh, he says clearly that these are people who believe that God has a hand, but unlike other hands, right. which is right. you know, the, the same. In fact, uh, exactly how Termidi in, in his uh, Sunan describes uh, the belief of, of the, the Sunnis of his period, or the proto-Sunnis, you could say. Uh, so it's a curious historical fact, and this is something recognized, uh, at least in academic scholarship, right. that uh, the views that would have been heretical to the group that uh, anticipated many classical Sunni beliefs, the al-Hadith, Right. Um, these <laughs> heretical views later became the theological mainstream of the Ash'aris, and th that's an interesting question. Uh, so <laughs> much of that, the earliest chapters of the work are taken up with uh, figurative interpretation of God's attributes. Now, uh, many of the reports that uh, Abdul, uh, sorry, that Al-Jubai has difficulty with, the editors trace to well-known and reputable works like Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih al-Muslim yeah. and the Musnad, uh, but there are, on many issues, things uh, that even uh, somebody like Ibn Taymiyyah, say, in writing many centuries later, would not recognize as um, authoritatively Sunni. So many beliefs that, uh, say, readers today would mm -hmm. find in, in, in works of classical tafsir, particularly Tabari and so on, mm -hmm. uh, that they would say are problematic in various ways particularly when it comes to the issue, for example, of mm. um, the, the isma or protection from error of prophets. Uh, right. Stories that are largely regarded today as just the invention of storytellers. Mm. Uh, and one could give many examples of this Harut and Marut and uh, the, 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 the angels or kings. And uh, the satanic verse seems to be the, the sort of classical. Um, yes, although that, that one is not mentioned here. So, um, and if you look at sources from the third century, including the recently uh, re-edited Sharh uh, Sunnah, <coughs> which uh, the Meher Jarar uh, says is, is really the work of. Ghulam uh, Khalil, not Al Barbahari. Right. Uh, I mean, he mentions reports that you find in, in later collections like Tabarani. Tabarani is well known, as Jonathan Brown says, for his fondness for rare or unusual or just right. weird hadith right. in his various ma'ajim. Uh, mm -hmm. And some of them are mentioned here. The idea, for instance, that, that it would be problematic, even to Ibn Taymiyyah, the idea that, and Ibn Taymiyyah specifically criticized this report that, for instance, uh, God <laughs> descends to the earth on the day of Arafah. Right. Uh, there are all kinds of reports about what happens in, in variants, and some he even you know, greets pilgrims and, and so on. Uh, but um, for Jubei, these, these were problematic reports, all an undifferentiated mass, right. which he attributes to the, the Protestants who certainly were involved in in the so, circulation. For, for uh, viewers who are less familiar, and indeed myself, I, mean, I, I don't sort of examine a lot of the um, early uh, Once again, there's a bit of an echo. I'm going to, um, yes, that's gone now. So uh, with respect to the um, early Ahl Hadith and 
figures like Ghulam Khalil al-Barbahari, can you give a little background on their significance, um, how they are linked to Hanbalism in a sense? Um, they are important figures and in a sense, you know, these are the people who are disparaged subsequently and even perhaps by their contemporaries like um, uh, Al-Jubba'i uh, as Hashwiya and as, in a sense, you know, numbskulls who are just transmitting and not really people who are engaging in, a, in an intellectual yeah, so he also uses this um, the term awam, uh, but somewhat morally to describe them. For, the, for him, God has uh, given us the Quran. For him, it has some verses that are clear in their implication, others that are ambiguous and require interpretation. Right. But the only reason that people disagree about it so much is they are impressed with their own abilities um, and they uncritically report hadith and um, they reject the truth and scorn it because of pride and other reasons. But for him, right. correct belief is, is very clear. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. um, of course, it would be for him. I mean, to, uh, I mean this, is, this reminds me of a, a, a remark uh, I heard Yasser Khadi mention. He, he did his PhD on, on sort of some of these debates between the various uh, Sunni and Mu'tazili. And uh, indeed, he's looking at the Ashara as well. But he was saying that Ibn Taymiyyah critiques a lot of these people by saying that, well, if it was so clear and so obvious, why do you disagree among yourselves so extreme, you know, so excessively? Yes. And, and so I, I should yeah. emphasize that, yeah. yes, he's very critical of the hadith, but he's by no means somebody who categorically rejects the hadith corpus. He says that most right. of it is inauthentic and fabricated. Right. And those who are interested can look at Rasha al-Amari's excellent article, Accommodation and Resistance on uh, Different Mu'tazili Attitudes to Hadith. You have some who are very skeptical and rejected effectively everything, others who are less so. Uh, so he, he belongs on that spectrum, uh, not completely categorically critical. Can you mention uh, the title again uh, and, and the author, Rasha? Uh, the, uh, the accommodation resistance uh, that's the just the first part of the title by Rashid Lamari. I'll post it in the comments sure, sure. Uh, on YouTube right. after we record this. So, um, yes, yeah, so he critiques their views on, and, and most of the, the book is there's such and such an issue, they narrate such and such a report, and this is false because, and his big criticism is. Uh, not only are such reports impossible and ridiculous, but they, they crit uh, contradict the Qur'an. Right. So, for instance, uh, and not only the Qur'an, but authentic reports. So, for him, there are three, three uh, authentic forms of knowledge or three means and of, of, uh, of, uh, of coming to accurate knowledge about the world. Right. Uh, these are uh, the five senses the intellect and uh, reliable reports. Uh, and in this context, he's really thinking about reports that all Muslims accept as, as authentic uh, and ag agree upon uh, as authentic. Sorry, historical reports, or you're saying reliable reports of revelation of Samak? I mean, we're talking about not just historical reports. So he gives, he gives examples, so for instance, the the existence of Yemen and Mecca okay. and all of these other places, even to somebody who's not visited them. Okay. Um, so Pretty that's, that's yeah. And, uh, uh, and again, um, there's an important uh, PhD thesis on Tawatur by Sheikh Suhail Leher, and I can also post the, the name and so on afterwards yeah. uh, in YouTube. But 
most of the book he reviews these issues, uh, some of his critiques are really very interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's a rich book, as I said. So for instance, he has a fascinating discussion of the question, who is the sacrificial son, uh, Ishmael or Isaac? <clears throat> so we know that there's something that early or proto-Sunni scholars disagreed about a great deal. Mm. Tabari himself prefers uh, that it was Isaac, although subsequently, and what we grew up with, of course, is Ishmael, Ismail, alayhi salam. Um, he says, based largely on the Quran, that it's clearly Ismail, and he makes it clear that this is the belief of the Arabs and makes takfir of those who disagree. <laughs> but his, his arguments are really ingenious. So mm -hmm. uh, based partly on a close reading of the Quran, a very close reading, I should say, of the Quran. So in Surah Safat, when there is a fairly long narrative sequence describing uh, the travails of Abraham, the description um, of the, the building of the Kaaba and so on, and, and then the, the, the sacrifice happens, or the, the, the sacrifice happens, and then it says, uh, that that I, Isaac is born, and because this is a narrative clearly in sequence, the mm -hmm. assumption is that the story of the sacrifice happens before uh, Isaac's birth. And another thing, so when um, uh, Abraham and and uh, and uh, Sarah are uh, given the good news of uh, Isaac, uh, they already promised when Isaac is born that Jacob will come after him. Uh, but if Isaac was to be the sacrificial son, then they wouldn't know that <laughs> uh, Jacob was to descend from him. Uh, otherwise, there wouldn't really be any point in, in the test in the first place, right? So as soon as Isaac is born, or even before he's born, in fact, they know that he will uh, have descendants and one of them will be Jacob, and so it's a very, very careful reading. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Like, like if, if he has been told that, that Isaac will have descendants. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> my. I'm, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, if if he's been told that Isaac's going to have dependent uh, descendants, then obviously um, any effort. He has to survive in order for that yeah, to happen. Survive. I mean, that's. Uh, it's a careful reading, but I, I wonder why he would basically call. Um, those who, I mean, this is a, another argument, I guess. I mean, I'm using later sort of like um, ways of doing that wheel and so on to yeah. exclude people from kufr. But, um, you know, to regard those who reject this uh, and, call, you know, say Isaac is the um, the bih, this seems to be a little sort of extreme. Right? And yes, but from, from his perspective... And I, I think he's right as far as uh, factual understanding goes, not right in his takfir. The Qur'an makes it quite clear that the sacrificial child, the bih, is, is uh, Ishmael for, for the reasons we, we've, we've mentioned. And, and for him, the, the reason for or what leads him to make takfir is uh, that it's anyone who says otherwise is rejecting the teaching rejecting of the Qur'an. The Quran. But, I mean, it seems that the um, approach here is that if you reject the Qur'an, even if it's not willful, whereas the later Sunnis are very, I think, um, eager to sort of circumscribe when you can, uh, you know, characterize. Well, I mean, it's not universally the case, and we were recently having a conversation about Qadr Ayyad, actually. But, uh, you know, circumscribing when someone is called, uh, you know, a kafir. 
Um, yes, yeah. I should the, mention there is an interesting anecdote Van S mentions mm -hmm. uh, taken from a Tawhidi uh, and it's apocryphal and I, I very much doubt it's true. Right. Abu Hayyan al-Tawhidi? Yes. Right. Okay. That uh, al-Jubay is, is known to have had a daughter and anyway, and, and in fact, so one of the works attributed to him is a, a book where he answers the questions of his daughter, which is, uh, and mm -hmm. she, it's called the uh, like Masail Ucht Abi Hasim or something like this. Abu Hasim is son, and, this and is they do takfir of each other. I re recall reading yes. this in Van Es. So uh, <laughs> Abu, Abu Hasim and Abu Ali make takfir of each other, and then the daughter makes takfir of both of them. Now, this is on, <laughs> I, I imagine, unlikely because we do have yeah. biographical material about. Mm. Um, Abu Ali's burial and his son was clearly involved in, in his burial and, and praying over him and so on. So very doubtful. Again, I, you know, maybe this is basically um, a, and you can, you can inform me on, you know, whether there have been discussions on this um, as someone who hasn't spent too much time in the early period. Uh, incidentally, thank you, uh, Aisha Saeed, for your questions. We'll, we'll get yes. to them, inshallah. Um, and uh, if anyone else has any questions, please feel free to ask. We'll get to them in the last sort of um, 15 minutes or so inshallah or 20 minutes and we're getting there quite soon but um you know shafi'i for example you know and uh, and the other ahl hadith are already quite allergic to saying anta kafir they'll say hada kufr for example mm, i mean qawlu kufrin if, or, if you read you know darar bin amr's kitab at-tahrish or even if you read this book right no, I mean, the proto sunnis make takfir of him and, and other groups that disagree with them. I mean, hmm. there's no sense. In, in fact, uh, in when he discusses Khalq al-Qur'an, the creation of the Qur'an, which has a few pages devoted to it, right. uh, he says that he gives a story that happened in his time right. of a contemporary being dragged before a qadi hmm. by the figures who are clearly proto sunnis and they're saying he believes the Qur'an is created, you know, cut off his head basically it doesn't it doesn't end up happening for various but, reasons i mean are there but this, this, are there not yeah. serious sort of legal and social implications for um, in the way that it that develop later on or is it you know is the state not significant enough at this point for anyone to really enforce any of these kinds of things yeah and really decentralized good and uh, i mean there's nothing no I, and ahmed the Shamsi has a wonderful book chapter in the Cambridge Companion to Classical mm -hmm. Islamic Theology on the social construction of orthodoxy when he talks about rare instances where the state did really uh, try to enforce correct belief in a reasonably systematic way, including the Mehna, one right. of several examples he gives. But this seems to have been, generally speaking, the exception, and it, really because there's no institutional equivalent to a church yeah. uh, with its powers of right. you know, s s d disciplining and punishing you yeah. do, of course, find the punishment of people for mistaken beliefs and across yeah. the century in different contexts. But it, generally speaking, it's not kind of systematic and wide ranging in the way one would say find with the Spanish Inquisition. But that, that's a separate uh, discussion. I should yeah. say, since you're very and my, me and I'm sure many of our viewers are interested in mm. politics and the emirate, there mm. is a lot of discussion in, in, across several different chapters of this question. Uh, one of his major criticisms of the Ahlul Hadith <laughs> is they will accept anyone as ruler and right. they will justify it with reference to Qadr. Right. He has some very interesting arguments against various Shia groups and their beliefs about the Imamate. So he refutes in quite creative ways 
the belief uh, that the imam uh, exists in the world, but his imamic does not manifest in a way that everyone sees, and the claim that he knows the unseen, Alm al Ghaib, and he adduces Quranic uh, verses and common sense arguments against it. So he says, for instance, and one of the ways in which we can date the text, he says, well, we know all of these learned people across the world. And he says, in Khurasan, there is so-and-so. In Qairawan, there is uh, Sahnun. He actually mentions him. Yeah. Dies in 240. Right. Uh, and in, in, in such a place, there is such and such. And if, if their man was present, then you know, surely we would know about his knowledge and his piety and all of this. And hmm. um, then he gives many stories from the Quran to ref- uh, about prophets to refute the claim that the imam uh, knows the, the the future and the unseen and so on just so kind of commonsensical Sorry, uh, 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 this is, this is um, before the 12th imam i mean so what's right well the, the 12th imam has not gone into his final occultation yet i mean it depends on when the work is written because right the Be'i dies in 303 and seems to have lived about 68 years or so right right, right. Uh, so you know that that is most of the third Islamic century. Right. Um, so but the, I, I, I don't remember the exact date, but I thought the 12th Imam kind of disappears or the occultation takes place uh, in the early 300s, so to speak. Well, the, the, I... the, the major occultation is in the 320s. Okay, right. Three, for some reason, the date 328 is in my head, but I might right. be mistaken. That mm-hmm. don't take my words for it. And so, in a sense, um, you know, the minor occultation has taken place at this point, and he's basically critiquing that. He's saying that this is absurd. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, in 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 uh, an example of an argument that will be reprised by people like Ibn Taymiyyah, I, mean, I don't think it's the property of Abu Ali, uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's very popular among later Sunnis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ahmed's actually asking a question. Okay, it's <laughs> excellent question. Um, then I, will, I, will, I will address first. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, so the question so anyway. is, why yes. are you referring to proto-Sunnism if already, if already from at least the second century people call themselves Sunni and are referred to as such? Very good. So this is in deference to the, uh, I guess, scholarly convention, although even in the text itself, several times he talks about people who are Sunni, versus people who are Bid'i, he talks about people who are Sunni Jama'i, he talks about Sunni mm. Jama'i. So right. this terminology is clearly around some, some time before uh, he's, he's my referring to... is that it's, uh, it's used in a more narrow sense at this point in time, and it becomes a bit yes, more so of a broader umbrella. The, the reason I, I refer to proto-Sunnis, uh, mm. and there's a great article on the, the, the identity of the Sahib Sunnah by Gosset, not uh, not the article by John Noas, but another author whose whose name currently escapes me, and 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 he surveys the, this term and and so on, uh, and its uses. And Jonathan Brown and Scott Lucas have also used the term proto-Sunni to refer to centu- uh, figures of the third Islamic century, like mm-hmm. Bukhari and Ahmed. Even though the the term Sunnism is clearly present uh, in this yeah. context, because. Uh, the Sunnism of the uh, Ahl al-Hadith is clearly distinct from classical Sunnism. You know, let's say it's the Ash'aris and Maturidis and what have you. Hmm. Uh, so I, I, I make this distinction purely in deference to the existing scholarly, uh, scholarly terminology. But you're right. I mean, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Ahmed uh, said uh, <laughs> a long time ago that uh, Dirar bin Amr uses this terminology already in 
in Kitab al-Tahrish, which is second century, mid or late second century, probably. He talks Pardon about Sahib Sunnah wa Jama'ah and this kind of terminology. So the terminology is there, but you know, I'm, I'm just uh, deferring to the... the Pardon my story. ignorance. There are Ibn Amr falls under which of these sort of sectarian groupings? Is he not a Martizali himself? Or? Well, he's normally identified as a Martizali. Right. Many Martizali reject that label because he's known to have... Um, subscribe to a belief in, in, in Khadr and predestination, although in this book and other sources, in right. fact, there is an account that he makes Tawbah from this belief at the hands of Ali al-Suwari. Uh, so some sources say he later gave up this belief, but many Martezala reject this, this description. But I think for outsiders, he's considered basically uh, a Martezali because he does have other things in, in common with them. We're very grateful. Um, I mean, to have someone like Ahmed Shamsi watching, Jazakallah khairan. Uh, and of course, Aisha Saeed, um, you yes, asked, we apologize for sort of um, jumping the, the queue with uh, Ahmed. Uh, if it's, <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was commenting on something very specific to what Omar was saying. Omar, yes. I mean, if you, if you want, you can wrap up what you were saying now and we could start. Yes, no, I think that's, uh, we, can, we, can, we can entertain questions from now on since we've started with Ahmed. Yeah. I, I hope that that answers the, the question. Um, but anyway, uh, it's so, a wide ranging text. I mean, I think from what you've said, yes, it's, it's a wide ranging text. Yeah, we. I mean, we can we can gather that there's a lot of interesting stuff happening here, particularly for intellectual historians of early Islam, um, particularly those interested in you know authenticity debates. Um, yes, or, you know, I, I should stress by the way, not only is it a very rich superlatively rich source for uh, people working on early theology, early tafsir, hadith studies, and so on. Uh, occasionally, the author throws out uh, material of really interest to, to anyone. To give an example, those working on gender. Uh, so when criticizing um, imami beliefs about Fadak and the supposed confrontation that happens between Abu Bakr and Fatima after the death of the Prophet, he says, well, this idea that Fatima confronted Abu Bakr or Amar or any of these others is, is absurd because, you know, what, what was Ali doing just sitting at home while his wife went out and uh, confronted them? You know, surely he would have stopped his wife from doing this and if the need had existed, would have done it himself. And very interestingly, um, he says, in our time, if, uh, you know, if a commoner from the market allowed his wife to go to the Masjid Jamia, you know, the, the congregational mosque right. of the town, there would be, you know, uproar and he would be excoriated for allowing this to happen, this kind of... Uh, um, and Jubba is based in... Jubba is based in the metropole, right? I mean, he's based. Yeah, well, he's Basran, but he visits Baghdad and right. many times and, and other other regions as well. But he's he's based in in Basra. Uh, when and this is why in this period he's he's kind of designated the Basran, one of the major figures in the Basran Martezila. But that's that's a fascinating insight. I mean, in a sense, um, uh, yeah. I mean, we're all sort of embedded within historical moments, and we have a tendency to think our historical practice is the norm, and so I assume this is partly his tendency to be um, someone who doesn't necessarily value hadith a great deal um, in terms of its probative value. I don't know. I mean, no, I mean, so quite easily something besides hadith as quite. evidence and and opinions of companions as evidence to support his views. Okay. 
um, and it's not always clear. Yes, so uh, you know the, the, the reports that Shafi mentions in his dialogues with the Al Kalam or debate, uh, for instance, that you have to compare it to the Quran and if it contradicts, then get rid of it, and if it agrees, then you can use it and so on. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I did want to come back on uh, one of those points in a moment. If it's all right, I'm just going to um, uh, pick on uh, one of Aisha Said's questions. She she sent in two. So um, mm -hmm. the second one was on takfir, which was something we were more recently discussing. Why was takfir not practiced during the time of the Prophet? How did it enter into our traditions? And uh -huh. um, I, I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, it, Omar, I, if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll sort of like take mm -hmm. a stab at it. Um, I mean, one assumes based on what it says in the Quran that there were types of takfir, uh, you know, um, uh, that occurred in the time of the Prophet. Like, don't. Um, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I think it was. Like, uh, yeah, but this is, this is different. This is people concealing their Muslim identity for fear of danger. But I mean, for me, uh, I mean, there, there is no takfir in the time of the Prophet, for, for very clear reasons. I mean, he's because nice. the, well, I mean, unless you're talking about the, the hypocrites, right? You could mm -hmm. say that is a kind of takfir. Right. Uh, because the Prophet is there. So there's no, there's no divergence in the Muslim community because they have one leader whom they all agree to accept as a leader. Mm -hmm. These kinds of divergences and disagreements only emerge once the Prophet passes to meet, uh, meet, meet his Lord. And uh, in that context, divergence, you know, even from the, when he's the disagreement about his burial and so on, which is discussed in this book, uh, difference appears very early. Uh, so I traditionally and you have the which have you know I think retrospectively very often read as a case of takfir, um, but yes, I, think, I mean the, yeah, I think it's more complicated uh, than that personally. Right? I mean it's yes, I mean there are different groups. So, so some of them clearly reject belief in the prophet or say that our obligation only existed to to pay the zakah when during his lifetime and mm -hmm. others who right. accept other prophets and so you have a variety of groups right uh, but in later sunni understanding say ibn Taymiyyah, you mm. know refusing to pay zakah and implying that it is not obligatory is itself of course uh, unbelief a rejection of, a rejection of something which is ma'lum in ad-dini bil or yes known. um okay jazakallah khairan on that um, I'm going to, so there's a follow-up from Aisha Saeed. And if anyone else has questions, please feel free to ask. She's saying, yes, I am referring to the fact that even with clear knowledge uh, of existence of hypocrites who are in the Quran itself described as being in the hellfire, they are yes, not. And, and all of this other, these other verses, which clearly suggest they're not, they're not real Muslims. Yes. yes. So you, you could, you could I, I suppose, accept that as a kind of takfir. Yeah. But, but again, it's not really coming from the Prophet, it's coming from the Qur'an itself. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's an interesting, I mean, it's divine intervention saying that these people are not truly, and the Prophet's response to that is to say, well, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to, you know, um, let people say Muhammad's killing his own companions. Um, and so, you know, that's a very interesting sort of situation as well. Uh, it's very pragmatic in many respects, of course. Mm. It makes a lot of sense um, so, socially, so to speak. Um, yes, should, uh, we should probably uh, say something about them, Emmet. Uh, so, in, in answer to that early question, sorry. yeah, this is the early question: Have there been any specific efforts to contextualize hadith within the framework of the Quran? 
that's a very broad question in my mind. Yes. Um, I mean, what, let me relate something to that question, which is, you know, um, when, <clears throat> when you were talking about the way in which Yubai, in a sense, is ready, to, very readily rejects a hadith on the basis of how you added the Quran or something along those lines, it goes against the Quran. Um, just made me think of the Hanafis, right? I mean, the early Hanafis would be quite, um, you, know, you could say, trigger happy, with, so to speak, with respect to saying, well, uh, you know, this uh, goes against the am of the Quran, and so we do not apply it, right? Um, and uh, of course, uh, the Mu'tazila found a home among the Hanafis for a long period of time. And some, I think, I don't know how quickly the Maturidis were accepted as genuinely members of Ahlul Sunnah. Perhaps some early um, sort of debates would have labeled them as basically too close to the Mu'tazila, even though the Mu'tazila were their major targets, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, of, of attack. So, yeah, I, I wonder how you think about the Hanafis with respect to the Mu'tazila, if you can comment on that. And perhaps yeah. that. Uh, and people like Sal Salman Yunus are much in a much better position than I am to, to answer questions like this. Right. Um, I would say the Hanafis are not, <laughs> well, there is a, a difference to the hadith in some respects that becomes more pronounced over time. Mm -hmm. So already someone, an author like Muhammad ibn al-Hassan, mm -hmm. clearly more differential to the hadith corpus and even willing to change his views on some issues mm -hmm. than, say, Abu Hanifa. Right. Uh, and then with a figure like Tahawi, you have somebody who's trained in the methods uh, of al-hadith. Right but uses those methods to defend, essentially to defend Hanafi right. opinion. So, and this is a, this is a, my own view, and, you know, it's a fairly polemical <laughs> one. And most of the times, the time it seems Hanafis are not rejecting Hadith for any reason consistently, other than the fact that those Hadith contradict their particular teachings. Right. And right. It's very clear if you look at the Hawi, uh, whenever he, so for instance, when he engages with a hadith on Raf Ali Adain or many other, many other issues, mm -hmm. um, his interpretations and uh, his rejections of some, and it, it's, there's not much consistency except this contradiction of, of the Hanafi school. And, so, yeah, in a sense, it's like, you know, uh, you have Madhab Ahl al Madina and you have Madhab Ahl al Kufa. In a sense, it's saying that you know the the practice that you know was established, and that you know later Hanafis actually, and perhaps even early Hanafis, elaborate arguments about the significance of Kufa. You know, because Ali radiallahu anhu was there, Ibn Masud was there, etc. The knowledge of that city was obviously so. So there's an effort to valorize, and w one of the things that you know I've not really systematized, and I, I need to read more of uh, Ahmed Shamsi's actually work and and other scholars in order to do justice to this entire discussion is. You know how much of early law uh, is quite obviously cognitive dissonance. You know we have a practice here. We want to. Yeah, I said many decades ago that. Well, you know, I don't agree with everything he said, but course, yeah. once the, supposedly once the Sunnah of the Prophet becomes authoritative, which is a point right. I don't agree with him on, then right. the actual 
body of doctrines of these schools didn't suddenly change overnight. Right. Uh, what happened is they wait, found ways of uh, defending them, and sometimes right. that involved in Shacht's reading the fabrication of hadith. Right. Uh, right. Although I, I don't find that entirely I, persuasive because they yes. did find ways of reinterpreting them and diffusing yes. them. And, you know, Ben Am Sadiqi's account of uh, the interaction of Hanafism in particular with hadith in, in his book is, is a great right. kind of... And, and the remarkable flexibility of interpretation over time as well. Yeah, so he talks about maximal hermeneutic flexibility that right. effectively, you know, a hadith could mean almost anything as long as it didn't, you know, as long as that uh, interpretation but, didn't, didn't contradict the madhab. But of course, I mean, Shacht's approach to this is, you know, of an older generation of, of scholars to basically say, well, these people are fabricating stuff, etc. And I think it's far more, I mean, I'm speaking to a certain extent as an insider to a tradition uh, and also someone trained in the later Hanafi Madhab, you know, the 20th century version of it. But also, um, you know, historically, I think this is quite, um, you know, defensible in the sense that, uh, so from, from a theological perspective, you can say that, you know, there are competing conceptions of what the Sunnah was. And that of includes course, the way in yeah. which that tradition is, you know, understood by these generations. Because it's it's its transmission is local localized for most right. of the first two centuries, highly localized. And as long as some kind of, uh, you know, ultimately the commitment to the Quran and Sunnah is there, but you know, various other, you know, human propensities to prefer local traditions, etc., are always going to. I mean, this is in a sense. Um, you know, Shafi's major intervention for how we can no longer argue that, well, that's how we do it here. He's saying, no, that's how we do it. And here are the hadiths to prove it, right? Um, but yes. as long as it's anchored in that commitment to the Quran and the Sunnah, I think, you know, that's uh, basically what the Sunnis said. Yes, I mean, that's what's defensible. Yeah, and, but I mean, again, even uh, Al Jubay would not disagree, but for him, the mm -hmm. Sunnah is a particular body of hadith. Even for someone right. like Dirar ibn Amr, who's you know more categorically skeptical of hadith, even though he right. cites a few of them in, in Kitab al Tahrish right. as evidence, yeah. uh, you know the, the only thing that you can truly regard to belong to the Sunnah are those hadith that Muslims accept. Generally mm -hmm. speaking, right. uh, you know even different groups accept as authentic, essentially. Right. And that, that's a much smaller corpus than the early hadith who have a much more expansive view of what the uh, sunnah of the prophet is. Yeah. I mean, but what's really interesting is even as late as the 19th, 20th century, you have someone like, um, I forget the name, uh, but Ashraf Aytanvi's sort of nephew or something like that, um, who writes A'la al-Sunan, you know, yeah. in partnership. Well, it's with it's a collaborative uh, enterprise, that book. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, it is kind of under the direction of Ashraf Aytanbi, but the other Osmani, um, I forget his full name, is uh, the main sort of brains behind it. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, those of us who aren't uh, you know, very staunch Hanafis will kind of look at it and think, well, I mean, like, you know, you're really trying to st stretch the limits of, you know, yes. I, it's it's, it's very much uh, very much like the Howie's project vis-a-vis -vis Hanafism to defend it with through hadith but why why does this challenge and why does the al sunan emerge it's in response right. to the early hadith right. basically right 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 uh, not to be confused with the, the original right, right. <laughs> but, but I mean again I think but we know, should we, because we're coming to the end we, we should yeah. return to Jopai yes sorry, uh, sorry. the subcontinent <laughs> of the 20th century right right Khairan I mean uh, please do sort of like uh, perhaps give your final thoughts on Jubai I, I actually yes. 
so it's a fascinating text. I think the editors have, have done a great job of tracing this material. Right. Uh, I mean, they always trace it to primary sources, so they don't, with the exception of the introduction, they don't make uh, reference to any uh, secondary sources when footnoting the hadith and so on. Right. Uh, so there's, as far as I know, there's no reference at all to uh, Van Esse's theology and society, theology and Gesellschaft, and right. many of the reports and, and issues discussed here do feature in, in that book, so right. that, that would have been useful. They do refer to secondary scholarship in, in Turkish and, uh, as can, well. We can look for some of that in uh, Madlung and uh, Ansari's edition, inshallah. Yeah, but I mean, they, they've, they've done the you know, most of the spade work and I wouldn't want to criticize them Fantastic. too much. You can always do more. You can always find more books in which these reports are found yeah. and so on. Jazakumullah khairan, Omar. I mean, um, if you like, you can briefly comment on what we're going to be doing next week, inshallah. Sure. And, so uh, I have brought, uh, I remember to bring uh, the copy. So next week we will be talking uh, again about a, well, a discussion of early stuff and origins. And this is uh, Son Anthony's book, Muhammad Sallallahu mm -hmm. and the Empires of Faith, uh, which is a book about the Sira or Sira Maghazi uh, literature and new kind of techniques we can use to recover uh, recover early early material and, and so on. So it's a very and exciting book. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll discuss it next week in Salvo. As I understand, Sean Anthony's kind of, um, in a sense, proposing fairly groundbreaking methods. Uh, yes, I mean it's uh, it's it's very creative. I mean it's of course part of a larger scholarly uh, endeavor that seeks to build upon and transcend revisionism and its kind of extreme right. skepticism. Right. And uh, it's it's more optimistic or sanguine about the possibility of recovering early material uh, on on the Sira Maghazi and, and early Islamic history and so on. So that's what we'll be discussing next week. I should say. Uh, yes, this is a, a show featuring two guys this, uh, so far uh, discussing books by other males, yeah, dead and dead and or, or living, sorry. Uh, but we will, uh, once we've looked at uh, Sean Anthony's book, hopefully be uh, discussing more books by female authors, of, of course, of whom there's no small number and many, many excellent books. So I, I look forward to getting to that. This is a problem we've been aware of, but yes. partly for reasons of my own circumstances, I've been restricted to a few books. Things will open up in coming weeks, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan, I mean, uh, I think, uh, and that point is, um, I think, well taken um, also, uh, inshallah, I, I hope that uh, I, I'm very grateful for Aisha Saeed's um, engagement because it, it does make it broader than just a, 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 a men's club sort of to have conversations on these things. And I think there's a great deal of value and perspective that can be garnered from um, sort of uh, the female persuasion, shall we say. <laughs> yes, um, not, not stated in a condescending way, of course. No, and I, you know, I, I myself have no. benefited. I, I think most of the teaching I do and most of the discussion revolves around works by by scholars who just happen to be female. So we will get onto that uh, very soon, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in a week's time. Um, and until then, fi uh, amanillah. Uh, stay so safe, stay healthy. <laughs> stay safe. Uh, stay do not healthy. go out unless absolutely necessary. And uh, we'll see you next time, inshallah. Inshallah. Fiyamani. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.